So we are in this uh, last week where we are uh, working through Philippians, and I'm, I'm going to cover a lot of ground today, so we're going to move kind of fast through some of this, so hold on. Maybe a bit of a bumpy ride at times. I want to uh, start by having you recite this verse that we've been doing throughout the whole time. Uh, so please say this with me. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Mighty God, we ask on this uh, gray, uh, rainy morning that you come and let the light of your presence shine into our minds and our spirits of our hearts, that we may be enlightened by what you wish to share with us. I let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to move into this. I'm, I'm actually going to reach back to start today with a little bit of the third chapter, and then we're going to kind of roll through the fourth chapter pretty quickly. And at the end of the third chapter, Paul reminds the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So this, this word of hope, then remember who you are, remember that you're grounded in, in heaven. This is where your citizenship is. You're grounded in faith, uh, and, and we wait for that time when, when we shall be resurrected too. And, and the challenge is sense to the people in Philippi. Remember, Philippi is, is the new Rome. It's a very Roman city, a very Roman culture, and the people that were there were very proud of being Roman citizens. And so he reminds them, yes, you're a Roman citizen, but beyond that, Beyond that, your citizenship is in heaven. And, and as you bring that forward and you think about where we are now, you know, the question is really, where do you ground your understanding of who you are? are you, uh, do you understand yourself to be an American Christian, or do you understand yourself to be a Christian American? So, so which is your identity? Where's your identity grounded, and which modifies that is really the question. Where's your, your real sense of grounding exist? And, and to take that and make it a little more uh, clear... Uh, kind of, are you grounded in the Bible or are you grounded in the Constitution? And, and I want you to hear that those are not uh, either or statements, but one is your identity and, and one is the modifier of that. Our, uh, our fathers and mothers of the country, when they were uh, putting the Constitution together, uh, you know, they framed it in a way that would provide protections for those of us who are followers of Christ, but also for those who are not followers of Christ, which means sometimes those of us who find our identity in the Scripture are going to find ourselves at odds with and in tension with the surrounding American culture. Uh, and, and if you're grounded in Christ, that, that's to be expected. And in the same way that Paul reminds the people in Philippi, remember, you're, you're citizens of heaven first and Roman citizens next. Uh, that word comes to us to remember where our grounding is as followers of Christ first and then as citizens of America second. That that's the modifier to it. So just kind of a, a little word to kind of start that this is where we're grounded. This is who we are. This is where our centers are as people. And then, then he moves into the fourth chapter. And he begins this, uh, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown. Isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't you love people to talk to you that way? Uh, you know, I love and long for my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintaishi to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Now, there's several pieces here to kind of uh, uh, get a hold of right quick, and I'm just going to touch on a couple of them real quickly. One is to realize, I, I want you to recognize the way he's talking about these two women, uh, that they have contended at his side. They're, they're co-workers with him in the gospel, and they've contended at his side in the gospel. Paul sometimes is seen as not recognizing the value of the women in these communities, but I want you to hear, hear how much he is recognizing these women as co-leaders, co-contenders, co-workers uh, in the gospel with him. And so he He's recognizing that. Uh, also, he, th- he's recognizing that there's some, some friction between them, and uh, it, it's not clear what it is. We don't really know what the, the source of the disagreement was. But he, he's asking the community to come around and, and help them hold together, come together, uh, not, not simply to be nice to each other. Notice, he's not just saying, tell them to be nice to each other. Tell them to shake hands and get along. You know, I mean, that, he, he's not telling them that. He's telling, tell, them, tell them to come together and, and be united be united in the same mind that is in Christ. Now, I'm going to remind you earlier on in the second chapter, he had that statement, right? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Uh, not, not, not like, we're not to be like Jesus or like-minded, but we're to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And so he's speaking that same word to this community. Remember, this is what unites us. We're, we're, we're not just brought together to be nice to one another. What unites us is that we have the same mind in us that was in Jesus Christ. And if you're wondering, well, how do you know that? Uh, it, go over to John's gospel, and, and we hear this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know the mind of Christ because Christ has shared it with us. It's given to us in the Word. Uh, so, so the Word tells us what the mind of Christ is. So when we, when we give ourselves in the power of the Spirit to engage the Word and to understand that, then we know what the mind of Christ is. And, and the call here is to find unity, not, not, not just by being nice to one another or putting up with each other, but by having the same mind that was in Christ that's revealed to us in the Word, having that same mind among us. So there's this call to come together and have the same mind that's in Christ. And then he goes on with further uh, kind of exhortations. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And he starts this whole thing, you know, rejoice, rejoice, you know, and, and I, love, I mean, you know, this rejoice always, I'll say it, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident. I mean, uh, you know, that, that kind of exhortation to rejoice in, in all situations, and, that's really easy for us to, to kind of, you know, hear as long as everything's going great. But let's be honest. Do you always feel like rejoicing in everything? I mean, well, you know, you got the, you know, I mean, this is my thing. You know, you get up in the morning, the alarm doesn't go off, so you're running late. 
and you're going to be late for work and you know it. And so you get up and you swing your feet out of bed and you step right in that hairball that the cat left on the floor. And so then you go to the shower so you can wash the hairball off and the hot water's out. And the next thing you know, you're in traffic on 183 and you're late for work because you took a cold shower to wash the hairball off of your feet, right? Do you feel like rejoicing at that point? Probably not. But remember, where Paul writes this from the context of a prison cell. He's writing this from the context of a prison cell. I mean, we've been inconvenienced. He's suffering. And, and, and he lifts his word. We don't rejoice. Always, you know, let your gentleness be evident. I mean, this tremendous word to, to rejoice. It reminds me of Jesus' little brother, James, who, who says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I mean, be, rejoice. Even, even in difficult times, Rejoice because God is working in you and refining you and making you stronger in those times. Uh, there's, there's an old saying about facing hardship that says, don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is. Uh, now turn it around. Hold fast to God even in those moments when life is difficult. And you will find that God holds fast to you. Uh, rejoice, especially in these difficult times, because that's where the power of God is, is most clearly made evident. And, and then he tells us to focus, you know, focus on what our minds on, on, on where we want to go. Now, this Frank Outlaw was the, the head of Bilo Stores, the CEO, and uh, he printed this on a lot of their materials that they use with their employees, and there's been a lot of conversation about where it came from, uh, and, and that's, I'm not really sure anybody knows that for sure. But he used to print this, it said, watch your thoughts, they become words, watch your words, they become actions, watch your actions, they become habits, watch your habits, they become character, Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. You know, where we focus our minds and hearts, that's where we go in life. That's where we go. Where you focus your minds and hearts, that's where you go. Uh, if you ever take a driving class, one of the things they'll tell you, uh, especially if it's a performance driving class, is you're going to go where your eyes go. Wherever you look, that's where your vehicle will end up going because we just are wired that way. This is the way God put us together. Our, our eyes kind of guide where we go. So always remember to look where you want the vehicle to go uh, because if you look at that obstacle you're trying to avoid, you'll drive right into it. And it, I've seen it happen, and uh, I, you know, I, I can tell you that really is true, where we go. So, so learn to, to focus on where you want to be and where you want to go uh, instead of being distracted by other kinds of things. Uh, when we do the, the first walk on an Emmaus walk, I mean the first talk on an Emmaus walk, uh, it's about identifying your priorities. And so what it says is think about where you spend your money, what you spend your time on, and what you think about. And that will tell you what your priorities really are. No matter what you say, that will tell you what your priorities really are. So Paul is encouraging them, focus, direct your mind and your heart and your spirit where you really want to go. You know, uh, don't, don't allow yourselves to be uh, driving off into the obstacles, but, but rather focus on whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, anything excellent or praiseworthy, that's where your mind and your heart should be pointed. And if your mind and heart's pointed there, your life will follow. He's going to continue and says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, 
Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, act on your faith. I mean, he says it earlier. He says, you know, work, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Remember, we talked about that a little. That workout means literally exercise or live it out. Uh, act out your faith. Live your faith out before you. And again, going back to uh, Jesus' brother James, uh, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And as I read through that, I was reminded that, that at the end of the story where Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples and he ends up washing their feet, there's a little discourse where he says, you know, I've given you an example. You know, I, I'm your, your master and your teacher, and yet I have humbled myself to serve you and to wash your feet. And so you ought to do the same for others. And then he closes with this statement, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And that's what Paul's saying, you know, live out your faith. It's not just about what you think. It's not just about what you say. It's about how you act and how you live. And when we live out our faith in the world, that's when blessing falls upon us and upon those that are around us. Live it out. Don't, don't just talk about it. Actually make it real in how you live. He continues, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in what, content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You know, uh, that, that's, that's one of those phrases that we hear a lot, that last verse there. And I was on a, a phone conversation with someone the other day, and they, at the end of the conversation they said, uh, remember Philippians 4.13. And I thought, yeah, what is it? Right? I had to go look it up, right? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And oftentimes we hear that kind of as a self-achievement, you know, motivator kind of thing. But remember, Paul's writing this from prison. He's not writing it from everything being great. He's writing it from prison. And life is difficult. Life is difficult. It's hard. And what he's saying is, listen, you know, you, in my life I've, I've had plenty of money and, and I've been broke. I've had plenty to eat and I've gone without. I've been in comfortable circumstances and I'm in prison now. And wherever I am, wherever I am, whatever the circumstances, I've learned how to be content and to find peace, which is to lean into the presence of God with me. Lean into the presence of God with me. Be content. You know, Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount has this kind of passage where he's talking about all the things that we think we need and we wrestle with. And he says, but, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, food, clothing, shelter. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day has enough trouble of its own. John Wesley once said, it's, it's just a terrible thing when we ruin the blessings of the day by borrowing the anxieties of tomorrow. You know, instead of ruining the presence where you're at, recognize that God's with you today. 
God's going to be with you tomorrow. And if the focus of your life is on God's kingdom and God's righteousness, the other things will take care of themselves. God will provide for you even as God has provided for you. And God will continue to lift you up. To find contentment isn't about um, expecting that God's just going to magically make everything in your life wonderful. Uh, but it's to realize that even in, in the difficult moments, even in the times when you are without, God is still with you. And God will give you the strength to bear up, to bear up and move through that. Um, all of us have these years in life where things are really tough, you know, and you're going along and one thing happens and another thing happens and another thing happens and another thing happens and pretty soon you're kind of sitting there going, okay, really God, you know, enough, okay, really? And you're kind of at the end of your rope. And the amazing thing is that, that you keep finding that God continues to give you the strength and the ability to move through that. I mean, the blessing of coming through those years is, is that, you know, at the end of that, when, it, when you come out of that year on the other side, all of a sudden you realize, you know what, we can, we can handle this. You know, life is not as scary. Life is not as threatening because you've learned, you've learned the strength that God has poured into you. Then he gives them a thanks. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the Gospels, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. He's pointing out a blessing upon them because they've, they've taken care of him. Remember, in, in the Roman prison, uh, you didn't have all the things that, that we think that you know, the prison would have supplied. I mean, you, they didn't give you clothing. You didn't have bedding, those kinds of things. And, and you had a very basic kind of sus, uh, subsistence kind of diet. And so uh, if you wanted anything more than that in prison, people brought it to you. People brought you extra clothes. People brought you something to sleep on and bedding. People brought you more food. The Philippians have sent to Paul a gift along with their friend Epaphroditus who has come and brought that there with, with clothing and with bedding and, and money so he can buy more food and be uh, you know, more nourished in that time to sustain him. They've brought all that to him and sent all that to him and they sent it with their friend Epaphroditus who made the journey all the way to where Paul was in prison and risked his life doing so. And because they were willing to, to pour out that blessing... Because they were willing to sacrifice to help Paul's welfare. Because they were willing to, actually, Epaphroditus, to risk his life to be there for Paul. Paul is pouring out blessing upon them because of the way their giving has sustained him. You know, Jesus told a story one time. He's uh, standing outside the temple, and as people are coming up, and they're you know, putting money into the, the temple treasury, you know, and you could hear those coins going down, those copper funnels and then this little lady comes up and she drops a couple of coins in and uh, as he's talking to the disciples uh, he says listen truly I tell you this this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all the others they all gave out of their wealth but she out of her poverty put in everything all she had to live on and he recognizes the value of that and the blessing of that 
It's not just about, you know, well, you know, it's time to, to do an offering, so, you know, what's, what's the loose change in my pocket? You know, what are the leftovers? But Paul here is blessing them because they've given sacrificially. And when, we, when we've traveled and we've gone into different parts of the world and, and areas of the developing world, and we've gone there on different kinds of mission projects and things, uh, it's always amazing to me because, you know, we go, and, and it, it, it does cost money, but most of us can afford to do that. But, but we go and, and go to be there with them, and, and then they greet us and treat us like royalty sometimes. And, and you just have to sit and kind of wonder about, oh, my gosh, you know, how are they... How are they, what, what does it take for them to be able to do this? And th- there is a temptation, uh, I think, for us, especially as Americans, to say, oh, no, 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 y'all don't spend your money on us. Except there's so much joy. There is so much joy for them in offering that gift up, that celebration, that meal, whatever it is. And, and you get caught up in that if you're willing to be open to it. This amazing joy that comes when, when people pour themselves out generously for one another. There's a joy and a blessing in that that's powerful. A couple of years ago, I got to be uh, in Matete and, and uh, be there when uh, the last water system was finally completed and built. And uh, thanks to your generosity and your sacrificial giving, uh, that happened. And, and I got to be the one that got to stand there and cut the ribbon, literally, uh, to open up the last station on this water, uh, water system. And it was such an amazing thing to be there with all these people who were just celebrating that they finally had clean water in their village and, and, and you know, were so thankful. And I was the one that got to stand there and do that. And it, it just it brought tears to my eyes to, to be there in that place of blessing and joy. Because of your sacrifice. I mean, Paul reminds me, you know, when you, when you give in that way, and, and Jesus recognizes it, when you give in that way generously, not just, you know, whatever happens to be spare change, but when you, when you do generously and sacrificial, there's a blessing that pours out of that into our lives. Finally, Paul's going to wrap this up with a, a blessing on them. And there's a lot in this. To God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word grace, we use it a lot, especially in the Methodist. You know, we use that word around and we, we kind of throw it around and, and uh, you know, we're talking about God's you know, unmerited, undeserving, loving action on our part. And we, we kind of do that without always unpacking what that means. But Paul understood that. And the Philippians understood the power of that word when he spoke to them. Because there's so much packed into that one little word. I mean, grace, grace assumes, first off, that, that we know <laughs> that we know we're sinners. I, I know I'm a sinner. I, it's not because I sin that I'm a sinner. It's because I'm a sinner that I sin. John Wesley would talk about it as, as a soul sickness or a disease that affects us. It, it, it's not a matter of I'm a bad person and you're not or you're a bad person and I'm not. But rather it's something that affects all of us. We're all in this place of of disease and brokenness. And this is who we are. And grace starts with a recognition of that. The second thing that it recognizes is that God is holy. God is holy. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. And therefore the darkness cannot come into his presence. 
because he is light and in him is no darkness at all. So our sin creates this barrier between us and God because he is holy and, and, and we are not. But grace goes further and recognizes that God assumes that we know that we're God's beloved children. That God loves us. That God created us and pronounced us good. That God longs for us. God wants to be with us and us to be with God. And God grieves over this sin that separates us. And so out of that love for us, God reaches out to us with a holy love. A love that overcomes the barriers that separate us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That is the proof of God's love for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. That's holy love. God loving us so much that God does the work of overcoming what separates us. That God's love comes and shines light into our darkness. That God's bring holiness into our sinfulness. Because God wants us to be in fellowship with God. That's the power of this holy love that, that overcomes that which would keep us apart that transforms us, that changes us, that makes us righteousness through the offering of Christ. That's what the power of holy love, that's what that word grace is all about. It's this, this power of holy love. And if you haven't quite gotten just how powerful that is, let me just point you back to this last little phrase here, right? All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Did you get that? Wait, wait, wait. Especially Caesar's household? And Paul's in a, in a Roman prison, and, and Caesar, the emperor, members of Caesar's household are singing greetings through Paul in prison to the Philippians. Did you get that? You know, it's like at the end of the Star Wars thing, you know, when Darth Vader becomes a good guy. You know, it's like, whoa, how does that happen? I mean, this, this, this shouldn't be the way it is. I mean, the emperor's household, how, how is it that they're even associating with a guy that's being held in the prison? Much less, how is it that they are sending greetings through him to the Christian church in Philippi? I mean, somehow or another, when, when Paul was in that Roman prison, God's holy love was so powerfully moving through him and reaching out to the people around him that it began to change the people around him. They began to be transformed from darkness to light. From unrighteousness to holiness. It was such a powerful thing that, that other people that saw that happen to them ask about it and learned about this power of holy love that was at work in them. And they also were transformed. And they talked to other people who saw the power of holy love in them and the transformation in them. And they talked to other people. And finally, it went all the way back to Caesar's household, to the, the household of the emperor himself heard about this power of holy love. And they came to the prison where Paul was to hear firsthand this gospel of Jesus Christ, this power of holy love. And their lives were changed from darkness to light, from sinfulness to righteousness, from death to life. And so when Paul sends his greetings back to the Philippians, 
He includes the whole community of the faithful in Rome, especially, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Because it's such an amazing thing that even Caesar's household would become followers of Jesus Christ. That's the power of holy love. That's what's all encapsulated in that little word grace. That's what the whole letter of Philippians wants you to hear. That God loves us with a holy love. That he wants us to have the same mind that Christ does. He wants us to live this holy love out in the world. He wants us to hear that, that even if you're in prison and you're living out this holy love, it transforms the people around you as well as yourself. And he wants people to hear in Philippi the power of this holy love that's changing the whole city, even of Rome and the emperor's household. And if that holy love is powerful enough to change even Caesar's household, what can it do in your life and the life of the people you know? If God can change the household of Caesar, why can God not change us and our city? Let us pray. Mighty God, we thank you for this gift of holy love. That you loved us so much that you're willing to overcome all the things that stand between us and all the darkness that we walk in. You shine your light into the midst of us. You bring your righteousness to us. You offer us life instead of death, light instead of darkness. That you come to gather us up as your own children and in love to transform us. So, Father, we come and we give you thanks for this gift of your holy love that you pour out upon us. We ask that you shine it so powerfully into our life and through our lives that those around us, even the household of the emperor, might be changed. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.